You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So from 1948 to 1991, South Africa experienced what we call apartheid, which was a system of intentional and institutionalized racial segregation that all but destroyed the country. And to give you an idea of what that looked like, the first apartheid law was the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act in 1949, followed closely by the Immorality Amendment Act of 1950, which made it illegal for African citizens to marry or pursue romantic relationships across ethnic lines. Then came the Population Registration Act of 1950, which classified all South Africans into one of four racial groups based on appearance, known ancestry, socioeconomic status, and cultural lifestyle. So in today's terminology, we would call that a caste system. And between 1960 and 1983, 3.5 million black Africans were removed from their homes and forced into segregated neighborhoods in some of the largest mass evictions in modern history. Most of these removals were intended to restrict the black population to 10 designated tribal homelands, is what they called them, or as are more famously known as Bantustans. And the government announced that relocated people would lose their South African citizenship as they were absorbed into these homelands. So to put it mildly, apartheid was gross in its morality and it was large in its space. Now in 1962, there was a man attending King's College in London, studying in a monastic environment where the coals that keep the fire burning in each of the students is prayer. And that man's name is Desmond Tutu, who is now a Nobel Peace Prize winner and a global statesman for his role in helping to dismantle apartheid. Now when the laws were changed in that land, that by no means meant the culture had changed. The fallout and the backlash from racial segregation was going to cause a type of civil war that rivals our own country. And the violence against people of color had been so widespread that incarceration of every offender would have been both impossible and self-destructive. There was literally no way that legal, just prosecution was going to happen because the infrastructure could not sustain it. Desmond Tutu, however, had a threefold conviction that he thought would help weather the storm and perhaps navigate the difficult road of healing ahead. And it was this. Confession, forgiveness, restitution. Confession, those responsible for human rights abuses fully disclosing all of their abuses. Forgiveness in the form of legal amnesty from prosecution and restitution. Perpetrators making amends with each and every victim. And this would all happen in public. Sounds very utopian, doesn't it? And absurd. Desmond was doing something actually rather extraordinary. He was taking the principles 
of relational restoration out of personal piety and the quietness of your own heart and putting it into the public square. And so a nation that was wrecked by violence was about to be restored by a type of social holiness. Now, this was a long, arduous process, nothing easy about it. I do not mean to make it seem like it was a simple fix. But when you are fighting on the, on the front lines in the battles of injustice and on the front lines of violence, the work can be rather long, and weariness induced from hearing story after story after story can be overwhelming, only to be rivaled by those who actually experience the evil themselves. And so in an interview, Tutu was asked, how did you sustain such a powerful anti-violent approach for so long? Like, wouldn't you burn out? Or wouldn't you want to retaliate? There is no way the human soul could bear such human suffering for such a long time. Now he tells the story of a nun who approached him in 1993 and said this, you have been a celebrity for too long and it is taking a toll not only on you but on those around you. You need once more to realize your nothingness before God. So, in his little backyard in the township of Soweto, Tutu built a brightly colored room that he would visit three to five times a day for an hour to do one thing. God uses foolish things to shame the wise. What strategy did he employ to upend one of the greatest systemic atrocities in the last hundred years? A foolish starting point, prayer, and a ridiculous strategy, confession, forgiveness, restitution. God uses the foolish to shame the wise. Nothing super innovative, nothing efficient, a lot of stuff that wouldn't work, and a ton more stuff that seemingly makes no sense. How are you going to dismantle and disrupt the powers and the principalities that are at work behind the violence against the image of God? You're going to get into a very small, quiet room for a couple hours a day. So to be an activist, you're going to get alone. To fight for the cause of someone else, you're going to escape. To free the prisoner, you're going to chain yourself in a room and ask God to do something unthinkable, get the violent to confess their sin, the victim to extend forgiveness, and for both to find amends with one another? God always uses the foolish to shame the wise. Now, why do I tell that story? Because I imagine that as we close out the teaching on the Lord's Supper, that may be how many of you feel. How are we going to get more formed into the image of Jesus? What is the play? We're going to get together twice a month, and we're going to eat the bread and drink the cup. No, no, how are we being invited to fight against the evil and the corruption in our world? How do I fight against the stuff that just continues to kick in here? The lust, the impatience, the rage, the arrogance, the insecurities, the battles over my mind. 
And what is our strategy to war against inequality and sin and a sexual revolution and the objectification of image bearers across our city? How do we fight that? Well, for starters, we're going to open ourselves up to God and then to one another around a table and both trust and receive the one thing that so escapes us and feels so far away and yet, yet is closer than our next breath. It is the very love of God. What is your strategy, Wes? Eating the bread and drinking the cup with what I have heard said is a defiant joy. It seems ridiculously foolish and outright silly in our context of a world that fights with different weapons. But so does an innocent Middle Eastern Jewish man hanging between two convicted felons as the reconciling act to win the world back to him. That actually seems farther than foolish, it seems offensive. That's because it is. We would say God will win the world back by overpowering them. And God says, I will win the world back by sacrificing myself in love for them. Our metric of fighting and our success in our strategy in fighting is not God's. God's strategy has always been to use ordinary people to do seemingly foolish things for eternal purposes. Just think for a moment about the ridiculous actions that Jesus said and did while on earth. He said things like, let the children come to me. You mean those little people that seemingly bring nothing except innocent naivety and nagging need. You want them? He said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. So you mean I am called and compelled to own my guilt in front of one another. I have an image to keep up. He said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So you mean the way of promotion and accumulation and status and persona and working my way up is actually not the way of life? He said, pick up your cross and follow me. So you mean making my life as comfortable as my middle neighbor with a little spirituality sprinkled on top is not going to cut it? He said, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. No other God, no other religion says that. You mean I can't actually check the box of earning your love because that seems a lot easier. Nothing God does makes sense in the world we live in, but it's not God doing something strange, it's we doing something strange. The world is upside down and God is putting it right side up. We wrap up our series on the meal today, and I have one point and two exhortations. And the point is this. Our experience of the Lord's Supper is just the beginning. 
Our teaching text is actually the story. We're just in the preamble. Like, we're in the introduction. Our teaching text is the plot, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is the eternal story. We are not even out of chapter 1 yet. The meal that we will eat together is a giant arrow meal. And the experience of God is the preamble to the rest of the book. And over and above anything else, I hope that you have heard me say that I want your experience of the table to be marked by joy. The feel of the supper is joy. Communion involves the joy of God. Think about that phrase, the joy of God. The practice of the Lord's table for a long time has been about the only the death of God. But I am convinced that the table must be about the life of God. Death is part of the Christian experience. If you are not dying to yourself constantly, then you have not grappled with the lifestyle Jesus calls us to. But we don't stop at the crucifixion. Christianity is not self-mutilation. It is actually resurrection. And focusing purely and only on Jesus' death and never on his resurrection and only on our sin and never on his grace evokes images of only blood and typically is marked by feelings of guilt and shame and remorse. That is the altar. It's not the table. And that is not the experience of the table in the entire scripture. If you go back, like we, if you go all the way back to the beginning in September or August when we started this, the Old Testament festivals were marked by celebration, not by grief. And Luke 24, Acts 2, and Acts 20 are all examples of meals filled with joy and hope. Hope. The way we practice communion, you would think the stone is still there, and the body is decayed, and the king is buried. But that is not the case, because grief does not mark the table. Gratitude marks it. Expectation should be your felt experience. Sitting around the table with God and his family should stir something in you, lest we go, not go far enough. Resurrection is actually cause for celebration. A question for you, what is your default image of Jesus in your imagination? What is the look on his face? Do you ever picture Jesus happy? Most cinematography does not. He walks around with this gloomy, sad countenance that feels like he actually is unable to smile. And I know, as much as I've very, very rarely seen a picture of joy depicted in cinema with Jesus. I have never seen Jesus marked by laughter. Ever. Why? There is great comfort in knowing that God experiences sorrow and suffering with us. We share in his sorrow and suffering over our own sin and over the sin and brokenness of the world. There is, there is great relief over that. But if God is primarily marked in your imagination by sadness and gloom, then you are going to feel extremely awkward and uncomfortable 
experiencing Jesus and your discipleship to him with any sort of joy and laughter. It will feel very out of place because there is a type of Christianity that does not have room for it. But a God that is not full of joy is not the God of the Hebrew scriptures. Zephaniah 3, 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Isaiah 62, 5, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We have a very watered-down version of God's joy. But He is our Father who experiences the joy of His children, particularly and specifically when they receive Him. The meal we share together should be marked by joy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.32, If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And what Paul is saying is, look, if Jesus did not walk out of the tomb, let's live a nihilistic lifestyle. None of life matters. Who cares? Let's just throw it all out the window. But Russell Moore riffs on that phrase and said, Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for yesterday we were dead. Meaning we have life, abundant, full life. So let's not walk around with our heads down, perpetually feeling like God is somehow eternally disappointed in us. God is not merely your creator. He is the bird's creator, but he is your father. And Jesus is not merely your savior. He is your brother. The Holy Spirit is not only your legal advocate, but he is the great comforter and healer. Robert Hodgkins of the University of Chicago says, Christians ought to be celebrating constantly. We ought to be preoccupied with parties, banquets, feasts, and merriment. We ought to give ourselves to, over to veritable moments of joy because we have been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the fun there is in being a Christian. My guess, most of us don't have a concept of our discipleship to Jesus that is that. And here's the thing, right? We mourn and lament and are even angered by the suffering and sin that exists in us and in the world. There is so much of it, and it can feel devastating, and it can feel like it's of the devil, because it is. But the distinction between how we react and how the culture reacts is that we also laugh in the face of death because we know death is not the end. It's a common, not a period. People should wonder, how do those people hold the heaviness of the world, and it is heavy, with a lightness about them as if they are floating? We do not dismiss grief and suffering. We just don't glorify it. In fact, we know that God is in the business of redeeming it. It's actually how he saved the world, through self-sacrificing pain. Resurrection is cause for celebration. Hope is cause for laughter. God is not dead. He is risen, and we experience his life in the meal. And following Jesus is all about tension. 
It's just all about tension. It's as if you walk downtown and are in Market Square and you see a beautiful, beautiful mural and you are stunned by it. And it like takes you back and you wonder about the artist that painted the mural and then the artist behind the artist that really allows you to experience and see the mural for what it is. It is beautiful. And so in some ways you worship because the world is full of awe and wonder. And taking 10 steps later, you are hit by the grief of someone shooting up. And it makes you sad and angry because you see an image bearer of God literally destroying themselves. The problem is, in our context, our default state is the latter. And so we become pessimistic and we become... uh, we're just, we're sort of, we're not waiting for God to come back. We're just waiting for the world to end. Our default state has to be that of wonder, more so than it even is that of anger. More wonder and awe will actually reveal God in the everydayness of life. I don't think most of us are wrestling with a Christianity, a Christianity that is overly naive. I think most of us are wrestling with a Christianity that is too depressed. But the meal, the audacity of the meal tells us of a day where God is coming again to turn the world right side up. He is a generous king. We are his loving children. So, practically, What does this mean for us going forward? Well, starting in January, we will gather in our missional communities twice a month to practice the Lord's Supper. That will be what we do together. Each week, when you gather, you will have a meal, like a full meal, that includes the elements of the bread and the cup. In some ways, it's pretty simple. Now, there will be order to this meal. It's not a pizza party where you and a couple friends get together and shoot the breeze. Um, It's not what it is. It's much more than that because it has gravity to it. So I don't want us to miss the gravity of it. But I am praying and I believe, I feel like I've been praying this since the summer. It has the potential to be transformative. And I tend to think it might be awkward. I don't love awkwardness. Uh, But sometimes, sometimes it's actually healthy for things to get awkward. Because when things get awkward, your face starts to show what you actually believe. And you just kind of have that look like, oh, I'm so uncomfortable. You all know it. Everybody knows it. We just feel like, oh, this is not ideal. And my encouragement to you is to lean into that. Own it. It is good for us to feel uncomfortable. It it helps us actually remember that we're not zombies or robots just walking around. Um, We should ask ourselves the question, make me uncomfortable. Why? So in light of that, two quick exhortations. And the first is this, the ministry of your presence. So I am burdened by something. I am burdened. Big C church, and it manifests itself out in every single church, small C local church. And it is this we don't take Philippians 2 
seriously enough. Consider others better than yourselves the way of Jesus. I desire for our church that when we gather around a table, we do something countercultural, super simple, very difficult, pretty revolutionary, and deeply loving, and that is that we actually listen. We take great interest in someone else's story, in someone else's pain, in someone else's victory. We defer to one another, not because we hate ourselves, but because of all of a sudden, when you step into the room with someone else, the attention shifts off of you and onto them. We are captivated by the image of God in someone else. And we are moved by the Spirit of God in someone else. And one of the ways, one of the ways we are killing our witness, and one of the ways we discourage other people is our inability, and more often than not, our lack of desire to listen to someone else. I want to insert a story about me. I want to self-reference. I want to talk about me. Because we are humans. The world spins on the axis of me. And it plays itself out consistently and aggressively in our day-to-day relationships. I have seen so many conversations in the family of God. And I have seen so many conversations with followers of Jesus, with the people who are not of the family of God, where the follower of Jesus dominates and railroads and completely runs over the other person. It moves from being a dialogue to a monologue very fast. And as strongly and as convictionally and as pastorally as I can say it, not the way of Jesus it's just not. Because centering yourself in every conversation is to say, you are not important. You do not matter. And I do not you. David Augsburger has this great line, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Sit with that for a moment. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Listening to someone else is so close to loving them that most people don't believe there is a difference. I can tell you from personal experience, the people who I have felt the most loved by are far and away the best listeners. It's not even close. We have got to, by the Spirit's power in our lives, open ourselves up to becoming people of love, which means people that listen. People who do not listen are not people of love. Now, listening doesn't necessarily mean just sitting there and being quiet. That's not necessarily listening. That's just not talking. A good start, but not the end goal. Listening actually leans in. It is the posture of the heart and of the body. It takes the approach of, huh, 
I would love to hear you share more about that. Can you please elaborate? Or what I heard you say was, dot, 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 can you expound on that a bit more? Or, wow, thank you for sharing that. That must have been very difficult. I cannot imagine what that must be like. Or, man, what an honor to hear that. I am so grateful to shoulder that with you. Thank you for giving me the honor to hold your story. No advice, no counsel. Not because it's unimportant, but because it's not first. It's not first. Consider others better than yourself. It's narrow, it's hard, it takes a level of time and patience and discipline and self-control. Tons of it. Tons of it. Bill Craig, who was a mentor of mine about 10 years ago, and to this day is probably the best listener I've ever met, gave me something I have not forgotten. He said, the moment... Oh, still hits me. The moment that you are itching at saying something in a group setting, or the moment that you want to respond to someone in a one-on-one setting that has anything to do with you, is probably the moment the Holy Spirit is speaking the loudest, and it's most likely the moment He's asking you to be the quietest. For 99% of us in this room, it will not be easy. It will not come natural. But it will be worth it because it is a way to honor another image bearer. So you bring yourself to the table looking for ways to become like Jesus, which means receiving the gift of his love, and then by his spirit giving it away by sometimes not even saying anything. I have said it a hundred times since being the pastor here, but none of us are struggling from being overly encouraged. We're just not struggling from that. That's not what we struggle with. We all need encouragement. We need to hear, wow, I see something of Jesus in you. The most life-giving conversations is when I see people honoring each other as if it's a competition. Like this sort of constant back and forth of reshifting the focus off of me and onto you. And I imagine that is Jesus' posture. It's the posture of helpful question asking. It's getting at the heart of a person. It's wanting to know them. It's embodying the life of God. And that's not just relational presence, but it's actual presence, which means it's a meal every two weeks. One of the reasons our church is set up the way that it is is because I believe that following Jesus costs us something. I don't believe most of the church culture we're embedded in as Christians in this country is convinced following Jesus costs us our schedule. We are slaves to busyness. We're addicted to something all the time. In fact, we're really too busy for God himself. And to be too busy for the Lord's Supper is to be too busy for the Lord. The Lord's Supper in this format requires your contribution. It's a commitment. And so if you are a part of a missional community, the ask is somewhat simple. Make it a commitment to be there consistently. Mark off your schedule. No one is perfect. We all have challenges. We're all going to miss one time. The goal is not perfection. The goal is deep commitment. 
It is reorganizing your schedule because you're expected to be at the family meal because Jesus wants you there and it's his meal. And the family wants you there because it's your meal too. And it's a contribution in like preparing food, right? You're going to be cooking for 12 to 15 people, um, which means that everyone contributes and not everyone's contributing chips and salsa. Um, although we love our queso, but that's not as we don't need 100 side dishes. We need like a meal, like a fully orbed meal. And it's a contribution in cleaning up. It's a contribution in helping out. It's a contribution in asking yourself in a five second window as you look around at a table, five seconds, in this moment, how can I be helpful? In this moment, how can I be helpful? Because that's what you do when you're part of a family. You take initiative, you engage, you look around and ask that question. You consider others better than yourselves. Not because it's actually a better way to live, but because it's the only way to life. Selfishness is the long road to death. And selflessness is the hard road to life. And the second thing and the last thing is the ministry of the real Jesus. Jesus is with us. Right? Some of the greatest words in Scripture are the last ones he said while on earth. They're part of the Great Commission, and literally no one remembers these. But he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus has given us the gift of the table and his presence in the Holy Spirit, and he will teach us if we let him. We have his spirit, and the third person of the Trinity is interceding on our behalf even now, and he will be interceding for you while you're at the table. The table is about what God has done, and what he is doing, and what he will do. Past, present, future. We talked about the past ad nauseum. We're living in the present. So what is the future exactly? It's what Sarah read and it's Revelation 22. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And the once beloved garden that has been turned into a barren wasteland will be transformed into a beautiful city. God is going to light up the city by the power of his Son. We will not need the bright sunbeams anymore because the sun will be light. And we will sit and we will feast and we will celebrate and we will laugh and we will sing and we will remember and we will work and we will finally see the goodness of God on full display. It will not be dimly lit like it is right now. It will be so bright and the miracle is you will not be blinded by it because the blood of the Lamb will cover you. Our meal foreshadows that meal, and our gathering foreshadows that gathering. We laugh in the face of death because death will be killed. We lovingly lay down our lives for our enemies because one day 
One day, there will be no more enemies. And we invite others to the table across economic and ethnic lines because that is what the table is going to look like there. So why not start practicing it here? Consider others better than yourselves. Only these three will last. Faith, hope, and love. Faith will be realized. Our faith will be sight. No longer will there be tension between personal trust structures and Jesus. You will have nothing else to lean on because all temptation is gone. And the allure of false gods of our world have faded and they finally, finally look as foolish as they actually are. The curse gets lifted, we get healed. Hope will be fulfilled. The suffering, the anguish, the lament, the heartache that each of us know deep down and the world shows us on loop will be wiped from the earth. Our deepest longing is met, our deepest hope experienced. And what is that? That we are fully known and that we are fully loved. And love will be the currency. Our experience of peace between each other, our expression of joy towards one another, our complete lack of desiring to use one another, objectify one another, or one-up one another can all be summed up in love. It is the center of the triune God. Love is our response to love. Joy is our response to joy. Celebration is our response to gift and praise. Unlimited, undignified, undeniable praise is our response to grace. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and yet we are so fickle. And we trust you, and yet our trust ebbs and flows. And that is how you are not like us. It never ebbs and flows. Your love is constant and unchanging, And we are so grateful for it. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.